a Pearson Harnish, but a huge third down conversion. You got the game on? Yep. On the move, down to the 24-yard line of St. Francis. Who's winning? He, he won't say the score. Laid up and waited for the pass. Short drop Come out on, of the gun. who's winning? Rifles towards the right corner, complete to Vander Cooey, who steps across the plane. Ah, say the damn score. This is the Say the Damn Score podcast with your host, Logan Anderson. Welcome back to the Say the Damn Score podcast. You just heard the big host guy tell you that my name is Logan Anderson. I host the show, and today I am live. The Say the Damn Score studio has moved from my spare bedroom in Beersford to the AM studio at work at uh, ESPN Radio 1570 because we just got done with the awesomeness that is the live auction show here, so I had to be here and to make it work to meet with today's guest, Matt LePay, the voice of the Wisconsin Badgers. We know what? We moved the studio. So, Matt, how the heck is it going today? I can't complain. No complaints right now. It's a fun time of year, uh, I think, in, in sports with the pennant races going on, football camp starting up, so it's a uh, good good time to be a sports fan. We'll start off here. Have you ever had to be a part of an auction show before? And do you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> no, I, I know what you're talking about, but no, I, I have not. I have uh, worked for a radio station that played the beautiful music of yesteryear, which is a fancy way of saying elevator music. Um, I've read the obituaries on the air, uh, did that for about a year and a half um, as part of each uh, nightly newscast. Um, but no, I, I have uh, been able to, at this point, or to this point, uh, I've been able to avoid the, the auction show, but never say never. I, th- I have a feeling if you haven't done it by this point, you're probably in the clear. <laughs> did you ever mess up an obituary? Um, not not to my knowledge, because those are one of the things when you work in local radio, if you mispronounce a name, if it's a high school football player or something like an obituary, you will be told right away. And I, I think I butchered some names in high school football and basketball broadcast, and I heard that. But I think I, I, I think I, I hit a thousand in, in getting the obituaries right. So that that's something that you really wouldn't want to mess up. No, I agree 100%. I never had to read the obituaries, but we had a, at the very first station I worked at, we would read, someone else would read the funeral announcements, and they would say, massive Christian burial after the Catholic <laughs> ones, and I they always said it really fast, and I always thought it weird. I, always, I honestly always thought they were saying massive Christian burial, like they were really <laughs> large, massive Christians. So uh, when I found that out, I felt really dumb. <laughs> <laughs> we all have our moments in this business, so yes, I, I understand that. I think a lot of times we, uh, I, I was a little confused the first couple of times I heard it myself, so you're not alone. Well, we'll get right into it. What I like to start off with is, well, first of all, you now are the voice of the Badgers, so your team has given me some of my most painful sports days as a Nebraska fan in about the last <laughs> decade. And uh, so I want you, I want that to be known right away. If I ask a hard question, you know where it's come from. But uh, what is your what was your first break into the business? Oh, the first break into the business, 
said, well, I was, I was lucky. I grew up in Ohio, and I actually, before I graduated from, from school, which I went to Ohio State, which that, that took some time for people here in Wisconsin to get over, uh, I worked at a, a, a top 40 radio station in Columbus, and they sent me out to the Rose Bowl that year, Ohio State. Earl Bruce was the coach. They, Chris Spielman was a freshman, and uh, they, they won the Big Ten title, went to the Rose Bowl, and they wanted a sports guy for their morning radio show, one of those morning zoo-type shows that were pretty big uh, in, the, in the 80s and maybe into the 90s a little bit. Um, so I, I fell into it. It would pay the whopping sum of about $12,000 a year, but I was working in Columbus, Ohio. So that was, uh, that was my first break into the business where I got to learn the, all, the, uh, all the components that make up a radio operation. Uh, but the first real opportunity to pursue my passion came about eh, three years or so later in the town of uh, north of Dayton, Ohio. It's called Piqua, Piqua, Ohio, P-I-Q-U-A, where I was able to call uh, high school football games, high school basketball games, American Legion baseball games. Um, that was the first opportunity for me when I wasn't playing the beautiful music of yesteryear and reading obituaries. I was able to uh, announce games, do play-by-play, which is what I'd always wanted to do. So were those your only two stops before you ended up getting the Wisconsin basketball job in, I believe, 1988? Because I know it said you got it at the age of 26. That's almost unheard of at this point, but obviously you've been there a very long time. That proved to be a wise decision. What was the the story or the break or the connection that landed you in Madison from Piqua? There was a brief there was a brief pit stop in Athens, Ohio, where Ohio University is located. I was a news director for a radio station down there. Um, but I, was, I was only there four months or so, and then the opportunity in Piqua came along to get into more of the sports world, which is what I wanted to do. And uh, I, I was in Piqua for about a year and a half again, making next to no money. And I had my degree, I had my journalism degree, but I was on the brink of going back to school to pick up some um, classes in public relations and maybe pursue a job in PR somewhere. And I I happened to uh, come upon, at the time, there was a magazine called Broadcasting Magazine, which on the back pages, they had the classified ads and there was an ad for a basketball play-by-play announcer um, and in Madison, Wisconsin, for WTSO Radio. You could be the radio voice of the Wisconsin Badgers basketball team. Um, now, I grew up, uh, first of all, a fan of the Dayton Flyers, and then when I went to school at Ohio State, obviously I became a Buckeye fan. So I, I grew up in Big Ten country, but didn't know much about Wisconsin's athletic history or, or basketball history specifically. So I gave myself a crash course into the history of Wisconsin basketball, but it was pure luck. It was probably the way a lot of people get jobs in this business Uh, has nothing to do with skill. It's more luck and really good timing. I just happened to come upon that ad, uh, sent a demo tape. It was for a basketball job and to be a backup hockey announcer. Our sports director was a football and hockey announcer, and he might have to miss some hockey games. At Ohio State, I did call hockey um, a little bit uh, back in 1984, something like that. 
Um, but anyway, uh, long story a little shorter, uh, they liked what they heard. They flew me up for an interview, and the um, guy who had hired me, as a matter of fact, is a fellow named Chris Moore, who uh, not long after he hired me ended up uh, being hired himself by the New Jersey Devils of the NHL. I was with the Devils for a while and then was with the Florida Panthers and now works um, he does a little of this, a little of that. You can hear him on CBS Sports Radio. You can hear him on WFAN in New York. Um, but I always say for, for people in Wisconsin, if you don't like me, you have to blame Chris Moore because Chris was the guy. Um, he, there were others involved, but Chris was the guy who first heard my demo and liked what he heard. And um, he was the guy who brought me up here. When you had to learn the history of Wisconsin basketball, Give yourself a crash course. In 1988, the resources to do so that you would use today were not around. We'll just put it that way. How were you able to do that and get the knowledge that you needed as quickly as possible? Picked up those old preview magazines, the uh, which still exist today. They're just maybe uh, maybe they're not as popular as they used to be. But to this day, I still pick them up. The Sporting News, College Basketball preview magazine or the Lindy's or whatever, Athlon, whatever was out there at the time. But yeah, I, I picked up one of those preview magazines for Wisconsin basketball. And it was, the magazine told me that Wisconsin was trying to get into the NCAA tournament for the first time in the eighties. Uh, the Badgers also had not been there in the seventies, also had not been there in the sixties or the fifties. Uh, Wisconsin had not been in the NCAA tournament uh, since 1947 and it dawned on me like, Ooh, it's, it's been a while with this, with this program. Um, but yet I was again, lucky where the timing was good because that first team that I had a chance to broadcast, it didn't make the NCAA tournament, but it was an NIT team, which was a big deal at the time. And if you'll remember that 88, 89 season, the big 10 was ridiculously strong. Michigan won the national championship Illinois was in the Final Four. Iowa was very good. And Wisconsin beat all three of those teams in Madison. And I will, to this day, uh, argue with anyone that that team was a huge, hugely important team in the growth of the program. That's not to say they didn't have good players before that. They did. But I think that 88-89 that team maybe sent the message across the campus um, from the athletic department to the chancellor's office, even perhaps that you know it's kind of cool if you have a pretty good basketball team here. So I uh, I always have a very strong feeling in my heart for that for that eighty eight eighty nine Badger basketball team. Getting thrown to the wolves in a Division One situation at a Power Five school like Wisconsin in the Big Ten at the age of twenty six, were you ready, or were there moments where you had to? you know, make mistakes and grow up really quickly? I think I thought, I believe I thought I was ready. But the second part of your, your question is the accurate part. Um, and it probably would be the case, I would think, for most of us of that age. Um, you maybe think a little, you think you know more than you really do. And I had to make mistakes. You, you learn on the fly. You, uh, you maybe even embarrass yourself a little bit. But that's how you learn. And uh, I, I felt comfortable calling basketball. I had done it for a couple of seasons at least 
at the high school level, and it's it's different, obviously, college basketball than high school basketball, but the sport is it's still the same in, in many ways, too. But it was still learning, a little bit of learning on the fly and, and you know, getting to know how to interact with players and coaches and, and being around a team throughout the course of a season. When I was calling high school games, we'd bounce around. We had a lot of high school programs that we covered in Ohio. This was the first time I'd ever been a radio voice for a team specifically. Um, so, and you can more travel, you know, more time in airplanes and, and all of those things that might sound simple, but the first time you go through it, um, it could be you know, overwhelming might be a stretch, but daunting, you know, definitely a little bit out of the comfort zone. So I had to learn some things on the fly, no doubt about that. Do you remember any of the mistakes that you made or some of the things that you said might have been embarrassing that you can look back at and laugh now and tell us those stories? <laughs> How much time do you have? Uh, uh, we got an hour. Uh, it, <laughs> well, one of the things that I, I guess it's not me slapping funny, but they, they Wisconsin won a game against Michigan, uh, which was a huge win. Um, there was a Michigan team that went on to win the national championship. And there was a stoppage in play at a really significant moment. Wisconsin was protecting a one or a two point lead. I don't remember all the specifics, but I think in a general sense, I can give you the story accurately. Uh, a Wisconsin player was fouled and it was a one possession game and the player was going to go to the free throw line. And there was the longest delay. And I was convinced it was because television went to a commercial so i'm ranting about it on the air i can't believe they would go into a commercial break and you've got a badger player ready to shoot two critical free throws and i found out after the fact that wasn't wasn't the case at all the, the delay was to make sure they had the clock right if were there 10 seconds left or there eight seconds left whatever whatever the case it had nothing to do with a a mistake made by the television people that the radio guy, in this case, me was, was chirping about. And and that's one of a, that, that's the first example that comes to mind where you have to tell yourself, you know, assuming stuff is dangerous. Um, yeah, to assume is not to know. And fortunately, uh, you know, it didn't, uh, it, it wasn't a, wasn't a mistake where I blurted a four letter word on the, on the broadcast or anything like that, but it was still a, a, an amateur uh, mistake, a rookie mistake that it was, was embarrassed. I was embarrassed by it. And the good news was the you know, the guy made a couple free throws, Wisconsin won the game. And what was ironic about that game, it, it's a little off topic right now, but a guy who missed a couple of big free throws for Michigan was a fellow named Ramil Robinson, who in April against Seton Hall, made the free throws that won Michigan the national championship. So that, that that's a nugget that I'll never that I'll never forget. And for me it helps wash out an embarrassing uh, mistake that I made on the air. That's one of many that I've made on the air. That is the joy of podcasting. Anytime you feel like going off track or off topic, <laughs> you are welcome to do so. But you mentioned something earlier that I found interesting. You mentioned that you were considering going back to graduate school and you said going into PR, and it, it may not be an apples and oranges situation, but I know of people who have you know, been in kind of 
I don't want to say dead end, but uh, have not found the upward mobility that they've wanted and considered going to grad school as a temporary solution to get better and then hopefully make themselves more marketable. What are your thoughts on somebody in the business today going back to graduate school to make themselves a more attractive candidate? I think anything you can do to make yourself more versatile. Um, If it's grad school, great. I don't think it has to be. But one of the things that I tell young men and women who want to get into this business today is it's like if you're playing, if you're in sports, if you're a baseball player, or a football player, basketball player, play multiple positions. Uh, don't just be a second baseman. Uh, be able to play short. Be able to play third. If you're a uh, basketball player, if you're a shooting guard, be a small forward too. Understand that. Or if you're a shooting guard, improve your handles. Be able to maybe be a point guard if, if need be. And in this line of work, it's a, it, it can be similar. And what I tell people today is learn how to write. Uh, learn how to write well. I mean, there's a print style of writing, and then there is a broadcast style of writing. Learn how to write print style. Uh, know where to put your comma. Uh, no subject-verb agreement. Because it, now uh, you're being asked to do more things. You might be asked to blog. It's, if you work for a university, uh, if you're the voice of a, you know, the voice of the Badgers or the Buckeyes or or the or the or the Huskers. Uh, they may ask you to write columns for the website every week, or if there's any kind of electronic magazine that the school puts out, uh, you might be asked to contribute to that uh, and be able to do so in a way that reflects well, not just on you, but more importantly on on the university that, that you're trying to represent. Um, if you are radio-specific, understand television a little bit. That's something that I've done in my 50s. Here in the last few years, I, 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 my television experience had been painfully limited. And now for the last four years, I've worked as a, a substitute announcer for the Milwaukee Brewers on their television broadcast. Um, that was painful for me at first because my, I was a novice as a television announcer, but I've been able to gain some, some knowledge, gain some experience. So the more you can do, um, the more in the, the more employable you are. Um, it's pretty hard to be a one-trick pony now in, in the broadcasting industry. Um, make yourself make yourself as varied as possible, and that can that can help you get paid for as long as possible. To be blunt about it, you mentioned, of course, switching to TV with the Brewers, and we'll talk more about that in a little while. But was there a time as a young broadcaster? where you had to learn to be versatile and it was something that you weren't comfortable with and that you had to pick up uh, in a in a, in a a situation where you didn't really know much going into it, where becoming versatile was difficult? Yeah, I think, especially early in, in my career, as, as, as you present the question, because it's hard to just work at a small market radio station and say, I just want to be a play-by-play guy. Um, you know that's a good way to make about four thousand dollars a year. Um, you might now. I, I've never had to uh, sell, uh, but many people do. Um, you're you're out selling advertising time, and that's really your main job uh, to a radio station and, uh, employer. But it, as 
they will throw you a bone and say, hey, Friday night you get to do the high school football game, and in the wintertime, Friday and Saturday night you call the basketball game. For me, it wasn't selling, but it was working in news, um, doing some news reporting, doing a lot of anchoring, or being the, the DJ for the music of yesteryear, and that's I'm sitting in a studio eight hours a day, uh, doing some rip and read news reporting and that type of thing. That, that wasn't my wheelhouse, but you wanted to be you wanted to be competent with it at least. And that's the one of the other things I, I tell people. You might find that there's something else in the business that you enjoy more. I mean, there are those who may decide they they really enjoy gathering news. Um, you know, going to the city council meetings or chasing the gubernatorial candidates and asking the tough questions. Uh, there are people who at, at one point may have thought they wanted to be a sportscaster and, and, and they end up becoming really good news people, newsmen and newswomen. Um, so I think, you know, the more you can expose yourself to, you can really get an honest assessment and with an open mind um, discover what it is that you want to pursue the most. But again, it goes back that the more varied you are, not only that makes you more marketable, but you may discover that there's some aspect of this business that you didn't know about before, that as you learn about it, you really want to pursue it. You picked up the football responsibilities for Wisconsin in 1994. I'm, I did not find the this scenario that involved of which that happened as I was preparing for this interview, I'm going to imagine somebody retired or moved on. Was it a situation where you were just the person who was there, you were doing a good job in basketball, and they just moved you up easy? Was it a competitive process? How did that come about? It was uh, a little, maybe a little bit of both, but again, it was it was a luck factor and, and a mistake made um by a radio station in Milwaukee, uh, which had the rights, um, WTMJ radio in Milwaukee had the rights to Wisconsin football and basketball. They, they kept me as their basketball announcer, but the station wanted, wanted one of its own employees to handle the football broadcast and the bidding came open. And, uh, WTMJ was one of the bidders as were several other entities, including Learfield Communications based out of Jefferson City, Missouri. Um, it's become a big, big, um, uh, multimedia rights holder in the world of college athletics. But in 1994, the bids were going on in 93. It was still a growing company. Uh, long story shorter, um, there was a deadline to submit the bids, and WTMJ was late submitting its bid. So it was therefore eliminated from the review process from the university, and Learfield and a handful of others were involved. And they Learfield had an idea that the university really liked me, the people who were the decision makers, um, and would strongly recommend, even though you are paid by the rights holder and by the university, um, the university made it pretty evident that the folks there liked what I was doing and would have would be perfectly happy with me doing the football games. Um, might have been a little bit more back and forth had uh, WTMJ been on time <laughs> with its uh, with its bid, but uh, it, was, it was a little luck factor involved. I, going into the whole process, I didn't know if I would be in Madison for very long. Um, but as it turned out, um, a mistake uh, ended up being something that 
certainly helped me a little bit. I don't know, would it have made all the difference? I don't know, but uh, it, it certainly cleared the path a little bit more for me to get the football opportunity as well. So you've had a little bit of a unique situation in the fact that you've covered a team that wasn't very good when you started, but both football and basketball have kind of slowly and gradually morphed into national powers where you've got to cover some of the biggest games that the sport has to offer. What was it like following a team that went through that process? It was fascinating, uh, especially in retrospect, because when I came here, remember, I came from Ohio State where football is king and spring football is number two and recruiting is somewhere probably in between. Uh, it, it was a big deal and they had their sellout crowds every week and uh, basketball was good. Not great, but good. You know, they would get into the NCAA tournament. And then when I came to Madison, uh, the first football game I attended here, there were 36,000 people at Camp Randall Stadium, which meant there were more than 40,000 empty seats at the game, uh, and it was it was a time in the uh, in the late '80s where the pretty much the entire athletic department was in a state of flux. Uh, the, there had been turnover um, in the athletic director's chair. Uh, football had gone through the tragic loss of its coach in '86, Dave McLean, uh, who died of a heart attack. Jim Hillis took over in '87. The, the season did not go well. They brought in Don Morton. For the following year, um, or actually, yeah, Dom was there, 87, 88, and 89, and the wins were few and far between, and, and the fan base went from angry to just not caring anymore. Uh, it just wasn't that a football game was not a big deal. Um, about the basketball program had what it was called the Faithful 5,000 at the UW Fieldhouse, which meant about 5,000 people would go to games. It was building, and then my... You know, the first year I was there, as I mentioned a little while ago, the team was good, and they were drawing better crowds, and there was atmosphere at the field house. Um, but again, it really goes back to my good timing, uh, just plain luck more than anything else. I got to watch a couple of programs, especially football, build itself from the ground floor. And when Wisconsin hired Barry Alvarez in January of 1990, you could see a change right away in the culture. And it didn't take long for Wisconsin to be a championship-caliber team. And what has amazed me now these last several years is both of these programs have not just hit a high level of success, they've sustained it. And, you know, Barry has talked about that a lot. That's the hard thing to do. You could you could get there. You could be a one-hit wonder. Um, but they haven't had that two-, three-, four-year drop-off. The basketball team has been in the NCAA tournament every year since 1999. The football team has been in a bowl game every year since 2002. And they've been in multiple Rose Bowl games. And they were in the Cotton Bowl this past season. Basketball has been the three Final Fours. Uh, that stuff just that that doesn't just happen. Uh, that's really good coaching, support from the athletic administration, support from the chancellor's office, and, and the fan support here is is ridiculously strong. And again, that's where someone in my role that's that's just plain old luck. I mean, I could rattle off in some 
resume that I've had a chance to call X number of bowl games, X number of tournament games, Final Fours and all that, that is that is zero reflection on skill level and 100% a reflection of luck that, that I've been the guy to have a pretty good seat for all of this. You mean broadcasters don't have a direct effect on the outcome of the games? Stunningly, no. Although I do tease B.A., uh, Brian Anderson, our, our main Brewers guy, I, my my winning percentage, or the uh, mine, here I go, the Brewers' winning percentage is far better when I'm around than, than when he's around, although he is a far better baseball announcer. So, yeah, yeah, I think we all know that uh, despite what a fan might believe, um, my record is the same as yours and anybody else's, no wins, no losses. I'm still blaming you for Nebraska's inability to tackle when Melvin Gordon ran for 400 yards. <laughs> I was talking to somebody about that the other day. We were, you know, favorite moments. And the good news in my role is it's hard to pick just one. They've had, you know, multiple. But the Melvin Gordon 408 yards against Nebraska, given the, you know, the importance of that game and, uh, you would know this, but I think Nebraska had a pretty decent defense. You know, maybe not the greatest ever, but it was a pretty good defense that uh, that Coach Pelini had that year. And yeah, that was one of those things where, as a broadcaster, you always go into a an arena and a stadium. What am I going to see today? Um, I didn't see 408 yards out of one out of one running back that day. So that was sorry about that, but we uh, we did have a good time watching that up here. This is usually all about the guest stories, but I'm going to tell you this story here because I think you'll enjoy it. I was actually on a trip to Utah for a basketball game with the small college I was covering at that time, and Nebraska, I believe, either got to a quick lead or it was a really close game at about the end of the first quarter, and I felt pretty good. And then in the middle of Wyoming, we went for a little while where I didn't get any reception on my phone, and about 20 minutes later, it came back on, and I thought something was mistaken because uh, Greg Sharp was telling me that they were now down by like 21 points. And then I looked at the stats and I was just like, oh God. But it's happened multiple <laughs> yeah. times on road trips. It was 17 to 3, I believe. Actually, Melvin had fumbled a couple of times early in the game. They were going to take him out. Um, best decisions you make are the ones you don't sometimes. They, uh, they reconsidered, left him in, and. Um, yeah, you, you mentioned Greg. Greg Sharp, he's a, he's a friend and a really good broadcaster. And when those things happen, sometimes you just make eye contact through the glass window or in the hallway and like you shrug your shoulder. I, I have no idea. <laughs> I Don't ask me. I don't know what happened either. So take us through what it was like. I mean, obviously when you're covering a game, you do the same amount of preparation no matter whether it's some non-conference game against a D2 team or whether it's a national championship game. But that game where Wisconsin played Kentucky in the Final Four is still one of the best games I've ever watched uh, just as a spectator on TV. What was the energy in the arena and what was your call and just kind of the vibe that you had for that game like? It was... It, it was incredibly intense um yeah i guess it's a it's a fairly obvious statement when you think of favorite memories that that's going to be right there at the top um it gets a little bit you know it takes a dent because of the title game and and it, it slipped away against duke but to play a kentucky team that was undefeated but i 
I really believed that Wisconsin could win the game. I didn't think this was like the 1980 Olympic uh, hockey game between the United States and the Soviet Union. This was not the miracle of Lake Placid. Uh, Wisconsin, a lot of the pundits, the national pundits during the season, uh, as Kentucky was winning game after game, a lot of these folks were saying that, look, Wisconsin is one of the select few teams that could beat Kentucky. Um, so I, I don't think it was a colossal upset, but it was, of course, a, a, a night that no Wisconsin fan would ever forget. And a lot of Kentucky fans, obviously the game is in Indianapolis. That's a very easy drive for a, a lot of folks from the Commonwealth. So there was a lot of blue and white at Lucas Oil Stadium, but there was a lot of Cardinal and white too. So the, the atmosphere, I'm not a big fan of basketball games in domes, but there was, they know what they're doing in Indianapolis. They could have a Final Four there every year, and I'd be all for it. I, I just think they're that good in that city in putting on big college sporting events. And it, it was electric. And uh, there, you know, there are two sequences, and it really involves one player that I'll never forget. You're getting into the final couple of minutes. The game is tied. And Sam Decker hit a step-back three. It gave Wisconsin the lead. And then he goes back down to the defensive end and draws a charge. Um, you could count maybe on two fingers the number of charges that Sam Decker took as a, as a college basketball player. But it was an unbelievably important segment of the game. And, I mean, it was the difference. And then Wisconsin was able to go on and – and win the game, and it was it was electric. The the feeling in the in the dome, and also like, when the game is over, we're doing all our post game stuff, and and then I I walked back to the hotel, and it took me about a half an hour to get to the elevator from the front door of the hotel because the 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 lobby was jam-packed with Badger fans. I just wanted to get up to my room and, and get back to my room before the team got back. But they had this reception that was that was off the charts. They had, you know, it was roped off. The players were able to get to where they needed to go. But it was you know, the, the, the love affair that was going on between the Badger fans and, and that basketball team was, was unlike anything I'd, I'd seen probably since the first Rose Bowl season under Barry Alvarez, but that, that whole night was, was just incredible. It was a great game. Coach Calipari and Bo Ryan have a lot of like and respect for one another. Um, but you just, you, the talent on the floor that night was exceptional. They were pros all over the place and it was just a great college basketball game. Covering Wisconsin, we'll stick with basketball here for just a little bit longer. They're well known for playing a very, very slow and deliberate style of basketball. And at some times when you're just moving it around the arc and not a whole lot is happening, of course you don't always want to narrate every single pass in that situation. Did you have to adjust the way you called games to cover Bo Ryan's style of basketball? Well, it was a little bit with Bo, a little bit with, with Dick Bennett, too, um, because, they, I mean, they played the way I think you have to play at Wisconsin. You're not going to run and gun and probably had a lot of success against some of the best teams. You're going to, the way Wisconsin liked to play, 
and still does, is protect the basketball, take good shots, uh, be as sticky as you can on defense, make the other team have to make tough shots. And that's how they have played, and, and the formula has been really successful. So one of the things mechanically I, I tried to do for a radio broadcast uh, is is be as descriptive as possible, which sounds like a Captain Obvious statement. But if it's an extended possession, um, you know, it's not just score time ball. It's who has the ball, where on the floor, who is he being guarded by. You make sure you recognize what the defense is. And then, you know, you can say Smith, right wing, tightly guarded by Jones, or Jones giving him three feet, giving him four feet, whatever. You just try to, you try to paint the picture as best you can. Um, at its best, Wisconsin basketball in the half-court game is, is a beautiful thing to watch. There's a lot of cutting, uh, crisp passing. Well, there are times it bogs down and you've got a guy just standing at the top of the key, pounding the dribble, um, waiting to take the 20-footer. Uh, but it, it comes down to just painting the picture as much as you can and not just saying, uh, you know, Smith, top of the key, throws a right wing to Johnson. Um, and he loops it to the left wing for Jacobson, so on and so forth. You, you want to be able to, you want to be active with your verbs. You want to, you know, don't just say pass. He passes, he bounces, he loops, he, you know, slings it, however you want to describe it, and then describe who is defending whoever the ball handler is and, and, and remind listeners where the shot clock is. Shot clock at 10, shot clock at 5. Thank you. Just simple mechanical things that I think if you get lazy can can slip away from a radio broadcast. But it's that old line. You have to be the eyes for for the listeners. Somebody is driving in his or her car or wherever he or she may be. You've got to be the scoreboard as well as the person who describes who has the ball and where is he on the floor. Bo Ryan with the national media is notoriously a little bit prickly and Popovichian. How was he with you and how long did it take for you to maybe break down some of those barriers to get some, obviously you're probably never going to get a lot of deep Intel on a live interview, but how long did it take to start getting good answers? It took the better part of, of half a season, maybe a little bit more. I mean, my relationship with him is very good. Matter of fact, uh, we were exchanging text messages just a, a few nights ago. They're all baseball related. He was watching a, a Brewers game as I was. Um, you know, we're, we're hoping that before the summer's over and the, the snow flies to be able to at least have lunch together here and just and just catch up on stuff. Um, but when he first came in, he was he was a little guarded. I knew him, but not well at all. Uh, he was such a highly successful coach here at the University of Wisconsin Platteville, won four national championships, and he was at UW-Milwaukee for two years and, and really helped, helped right the ship over there. Um, he, he's basically known nothing but winning. But I, I, he was maybe a, a little guarded when he first arrived here, but it didn't take all that long um, before he was, I think he understood that it, you know, it wasn't out to get him um, you know, as, as the radio voice of a team. I mean, you're not, you're not uh, trying to be the head cheerleader, but you're certainly not out to you're not out to get him. You're not out to write stuff just to get clicks or say stuff just to get a reaction. 
And as it turned out, we, you know, had a, have enjoyed a very good relationship. Now on the record, uh, Bo is like many coaches, he's only going to say so much. Um, but I never really felt, you know, between Bo and the assistance that he had, I never really felt that I was lacking for the information I needed to be able to present the broadcast. Um, you know, he's, uh, you know, the Bo Ryan that I got to know, uh, pretty well over the years is a pretty likable dude. He could, you know, tell a funny story. Um, he, he has a great network of friends from his beloved Chester, Pennsylvania. We always enjoy going, going out east if it's to play Penn State or you know, sometimes they would play Temple. Um, or they played Penn one year at the Palestra, and it was always a lot of fun just to get to talk to a, a lot of his old friends. But I, I certainly understand where a lot of the media would be frustrated with him because in, in news conferences were not really his wheelhouse. Didn't He didn't particularly enjoy doing them most of the time, and it showed. Uh, but my interactions with him uh, were you know, 98% really good. And it, I'm, you know, I'm happy to say to this day we, uh, we get along, we swap messages, and uh, in, enjoy the time that we have a, when we have a chance to visit. So you got the opportunity to start filling in for Brian Anderson of the Milwaukee Brewers in 2014, and I read that you had not called a baseball game for 20 years at that point. What was your mindset going into your first baseball game in 20 years? It was on TV, which was something that you're not familiar with, and it's in the major leagues. Scared to death. Um, I was thrilled when they called in January to tell me that they were bringing me on. I was thrilled for about 15 minutes, and then um, I was uptight. But what in the world am I doing here? Um, and you know, the, to be honest, they knew that I had not. I when it was a, a third party kind of working between myself and and the ball club, and. You know, I told the, the third person, I said, yeah, I'd be interested, but, you know, they need to know I, I haven't done this. You know, I haven't done a whole lot of it, period. And it had been more than 20 years since I called a baseball game. And that was for radio. Um, and I lost the cassette tape of it. So you take my word for it. <laughs> I, I did a game, but it was a long, long time ago. And went through the interview process and uh, did a uh, uh, did a little demo, which was very, you know, very sterile. You're in a conference room and you're looking at a, uh, you know, a game on a screen that was played the previous August and trying to act like you're surprised at, at what, what happened. Um, but no, I was, I was absolutely scared to death and I was absolutely miserable on the air. I, I had just come off a, a final four. There, there was the 2014 final four. They had a great run, uh, got beat on a late shot by Kentucky um, in, uh, in Arlington, Texas. So I was on fumes, uh, had zero spring training and boom, my first game is in PNC park in Pittsburgh, uh, with a sky high booth and was totally out of place. It was a, um, you know, nobody died. That was the good news. I mean, at the end of it all, it's just broadcasting, uh, but it was awful. And it, it, Took, it took a while. It has taken a while to where I feel like, oh, okay, I'm, I'm kind of comfortable with this. But even to this day, um, you know, I, when I fill in for BA, it's for about a third of the season. I'm there for a few games and then away, a few games and then away. Uh, that isn't the optimal way to be a baseball announcer, but it 
seems to work pretty well. The guy I'm with, Bill Schroeder, is a great guy. He's a brewer through and through. He's a terrific broadcaster, and the club's been great. But that first game, if they would have punted me after that first game, I would have totally understood. Did you ever go back and watch that tape from that first game, or did you just accept that you weren't happy with the product and that it was you would get better without watching it? I, I saw part of it because I, where I thought I made mistakes and then I was praying that I didn't, but I wanted let me look back, and sure enough, uh, my prayers were not answered the way I would have wanted, and the mistakes were there. So wire to wire, no, but I did... Uh, but I, you know, I did look back at, at certain segments of the broadcast, and it was uh, every bit as unfortunate as I, as I was afraid it was. But I, I got bailed out later in the weekend. They ended a rally. They, they tied a game. Uh, they took the lead and won a game with a ninth-inning homer one night, tied a game the next day, ended up winning in extra innings. There were enough moments um, where I was able to – quote-unquote, stick the landing on, on the calls a bit. Uh, I think how you call big moments can sometimes be overrated, but it but it helped me a little bit get through it. But um, a lot of those games that first year, I don't have a great interest in looking back. Um, but it, it's important to do it. Uh, you, you want to, where you think you, even if even if you think it was good, sometimes you can look back and you could discover ways where you could be better. Um, but I, I didn't put myself through watching that entire first broadcast. That, that would have been cruel and unusual punishment. What do you mean when you say that being able to call big moments is overrated? Because I know what you're saying, and I kind of believe the same thing. I just want to hear your thoughts. Yeah, it, 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 a lot of times people in our business, if they're media uh, media critics or, or whatever, or, or, or even fans, how you, you know, if you, how you call that last second shot of the game winning touchdown or the walk off Homer that it's important. No question. Uh, you want to be able to hit those calls more than you miss those calls, but there's so much more to, to a broadcast. And, and I, you could probably come up with announcers of every sport, uh, but I, you know, I think of a of a Vin Scully, who is many people would tell you the best there will ever be uh, in, in terms of a baseball announcer and his ability to tell stories and just make you feel comfortable. Uh, in, in hockey right now, Doc Emmerich, who may be pound for pound the best announcer of any sport at any level. Now, his ability is there a specific Mike Doc Emmerich moment? that makes the hair stand up, uh, you know, on your arms, maybe, maybe not, but his ability to just enhance your enjoyment of watching a hockey game. Um, if it's, it, it could be a, you know, telling a story or just his word usage. Uh, he, he does, he doesn't rely just on two or three, uh, two or three, um, crutch verbs, so to speak. He, he has an expanded vocabulary. That's great fun just to listen to the ways he describes a simple pass. Uh, that that type of thing. To me, that is really that's the craft of, of this profession. Um, and don't get me wrong, you need to get the big moments right, but I think there's a lot more to it than that. What is the key to you to getting big moments right? 
I think you want to, if you're the voice of a team, um, you certainly want to be able to, to capture the significance of the moment. Um, you don't want to bury the needle necessarily. You don't want to go, I mean, you're, you're allowed to raise your voice. That's okay. You know, you don't, you know, you don't have, it's not somebody sinking a putt, putt at number seven on Augusta on Thursday. You know, this is a, if it's a football or a basketball game or a walk-off homer in October, you're allowed to get excited about it. Um, but one of the things that I, even for radio, I've, I've tried to be reasonably concise. They say in television, you're the caption radio, you can be more descriptive, but Going back to when when the basketball team at Wisconsin beat Kentucky in the in the Final Four, uh, I, in my own mind, is it was uh, I didn't have anything prepared. I didn't have a script like just in case. But as the game was winding down, I thought, you know, nationally, this is going to be about Kentucky's undefeated season ending. But for Wisconsin, it was about advancing to the title game. So as the clock was hitting zero, I said the bad, you know, I, I said it up more emphatically than I'm about to present it here. I said the Badgers have made it to Monday night. They'll play for the national championship against Duke. Um, said with the again, a little bit more enthusiasm. But I, coaches in college, they always talk about get to Monday night, get to the final game of the season. And I thought, you know, for me, that was more significant. It was Wisconsin winning it much more so than Kentucky losing it. So that, that was, that, that's one example there. Um, but you don't have to go on and on, state what happened, be enthusiastic about it. And then even for radio, it's okay to lay out for television. It's probably better if you lay out, but for radio, uh, I think you can still do that. Um, Maybe for not as long as you would for television, but let the moment breathe. I think that's important. So working TV for the Brewers, you don't work directly with the Hall of Famer Bob Euchre, but I'm sure you're allowed to, not allowed, but I'm sure you cross paths from time to time and have had conversations and, and had some story time. Give us a story of what Bob Euchre is like. Well, the thing that, that strikes me maybe the most about him is his energy level. I mean, he's, you know, we're talking about a, a man in his 80s now, and his schedule is it's reduced, but it's still, it's still busy. It's active um, for someone who's 82, 83 years old. And he is, I mean, he's remarkably funny. You know, when we're on the road, it's always fun to take the bus ride from the hotel to the ballpark because he, he has a million stories from his years on the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, and you know all that. You know, working with Costas, uh, you know, and for NBC, doing the World Series games back in the '90s, and, and he knows pretty much everybody in the in the broadcasting and, and entertainment business. Um, but what really, above all else, is the the energy level he has at the ballpark. I mean, he's, we all know he's funny. He's, uh, you know, made a great living making fun of himself, uh, but he's a really good broadcaster and he still at heart, he's a ball player. 
I mean, the 200 average and all, he was a major league ball player. And I think he takes a lot of pride in that as well. He should. Uh, But for someone who has been in the game for what, six decades, the way he bounces around, interacts with players uh, and, and the manager, Craig Council, and the coaches and uh, opposing players love to come up to him and say hi. I just, when I feel like I'm like wearing down a little bit, I see Bob Euchre for 10 seconds and I'm embarrassed that I feel worn down because this guy who has seen everything in the game twice, um, he just has a boyish enthusiasm that's uh, impossible not not to admire. He's just he's really really good at what he does. We know him as being a funny guy, but his uh, he is a master of his craft. He's in the Hall of Fame for reasons beyond his joke telling abilities. I can tell you that. So you, when it comes to Wisconsin sports over the last oh thirty years, are you literally wrote the book on? on Wisconsin sports called Why Not Wisconsin. What made you decide you wanted to write a book? I didn't. I had to be talked into it. I had said no a time or two, and then I thought, well, okay. Um, It's something I can can check off the bucket list and be able to give it to my folks. And here, here's something. Um, There's my ugly mug in the cover, and and you can take a look at that if I haven't been home for a, a few weeks or a couple of months or whatever. But I, I did think that there were stories worth worth telling. You know, it's certainly not a, um, you know, it's not like a tell-all uh, Hollywood gossip sheet. Um, but I, I think it's just a way for, if you're a longtime Wisconsin Badger fan, um, it could help for those folks relive memories of, uh, of great games and maybe give them a little insight as to, as to what players and coaches go through. Uh, I think in our role, we probably know enough to be dangerous, uh, but we get to see more things than, than the average fan gets to see. And for a younger fan, it, it's, it's, it was, it's meant to be a, a book that gives you some perspective. I mean, there are college kids now, at the University of Wisconsin who have no reason to know and impossible for them to understand that there was a time where these programs weren't very good and the stadium was half full and the basketball arena was half full and that was it. They, they, they don't know that. They just know teams that are in contention for league championships and playing in bowl games and in NCAA tournaments. And I think it's important for the 20-year-old or for that matter now, even a 25-year-old, to understand that that's not always been the case here. And maybe you should, should check out the story of how this, uh, how this program or how both of those programs have been able to, to build themselves into what they are today. So the writing process, I know you talked about being able to write earlier in this conversation. Did you use a ghostwriter or was everything written by you yourself? It was written by me, and I should have used a ghostwriter, um, quite frankly. I, I used an, an editor, someone I never met face-to-face, and and quite frankly, there were some mechanical uh, things in the book that I wasn't overly pleased with. And At the end of it all, it's, it's on me, but 
Um, you know, I know enough writers here. I probably, if I had to do it again, I would have, I would have used one. I, I wanted, I wanted it to be my words. I didn't want to be one of those guys who, who says I was misquoted in my own book. Um, you know, that, that wasn't the case, but just, uh, some mechanical, some grammatical, um, issues, um, some, some grammar issues, excuse me, that, um, that came up that would not have in all likelihood had I used a ghostwriter, but, but all in all, you know, the, the project was what it was. I mean, it wasn't out to win a Pulitzer. It was just trying to tell the, tell the story of, of how these programs grew and, and, you know, uh, stories of some of the coaches and their backgrounds and some favorite moments and, you know, favorite people I've met along the way. It, it was, um, it was painful. I guess I'm glad I did it. I don't know if I have any um, any great ambition to do another one, um, but it's it, one of the things I'm proud of in, in my little career here is I've been able to experience a lot of things. I've been a local TV sports anchor. I've dabbled in, uh, in sports talk, uh, not my favorite thing, but I've dabbled in it, and I've been able to, to do a lot of different things. And just to be able to write a book, anything that gets you out of your comfort zone, I think um, can be a good thing. And um, it was definitely out of my comfort zone. So um, once maybe is enough in the case of writing a book, but I'm uh, I'm glad I did it. So when, I, I don't want to say you have to do this because I've never written a book and I don't know the process, but what you hear people say is, you know, you have to provide some sort of content for lack of a better word, you need to dig up a little bit of dirt that's going to get people to buy the book. As the voice of a program, obviously you're not going to say anything that's going to throw anybody too far under the bus, but how difficult was it to balance finding interesting content with preserving your relationships with coaches? Yeah, was it? Yeah, I made it very clear with the publisher of this, and, and they understood it because I was one of several um guys who they reached out to, to either, you know, pro guys or college, college announcers to just tell some stories. You know, it wasn't about, uh, you know, telling the stories of the wild nights where you were out until the sun came up and you were getting in all kinds of trouble. They, they weren't looking for that. And I had no, uh, no desire to, to even consider going down that path. It was just more of a tell the story of how these programs we're able to build. If there's something funny along the way that is that's harmless, but they could, but uh, could provide a chuckle, then then certainly feel free. But I, I never felt any kind of uh, any kind of pressure from the publisher to uh, to you know dig up any dirt. That was that wasn't going to do it. That was going to be a, a game ender. Had they insisted on something like that anyway, um, and most of the stuff that I did. Most of the dirt I uncovered was making fun of myself for uh, some broadcasting gaps or, or, or stuff like that. And, and fortunately here, they haven't really had a lot of really ugly stuff. You know, they're not perfect. You know, there have been mistakes here. There have been violations here. Um, but when I, when I wrote the book, which I guess was five years ago now, something like that, where it came out, um, you know, there was nothing that was x-rated that that i would have been able to write about with any knowledge as to what what was going on shenanigans and stuff like that so 
um, it was like I said, it wasn't wasn't meant to be anything um, any Hollywood gossip. Just more the more the tale of a couple of programs that have, that went from very much under the radar to nationally respected, and here's how they got there. So I want to finish up with a couple questions that I ask just about everybody that comes on this podcast. And the first one is I always enjoy what I like to call broadcast horror stories, where something goes horribly wrong as part of a broadcast, uh, the equipment breaks down, the location's horrible, uh, a coach decides to berate you on the sideline for whatever reason in the middle of a game. What are a couple of yours that you've gone through that would qualify as broadcast horror stories? Well, one of the horror stories actually goes back to near the beginning of this conversation. You had asked about a... You know, <laughs> the, the beginning of this conversation was your horror story? Yeah. You, you <laughs> it's been that bad? Mistake. <laughs> I made a rookie mistake, but it, it was like in year 13 or 14 or whatever it was uh, of my being the, uh, the radio voice of Wisconsin basketball. They were playing in 1999. They were playing in Charlotte, North Carolina against... What was it? Was it Southeastern or Southeast or Southwest Missouri State? Now it's Missouri State. Steve Alford was the coach there at the time. Wisconsin, it kind of limped into the end of the regular season. It was a good team, off to a really good start under Dick Bennett. But they weren't playing well toward the end of the season, and it limped into the NCAA tournament. Anyway, they're playing this game in Charlotte, and the halftime score was 21 to 12. This is a basketball game, 21, 12. They're trailing in their first round NCAA tournament game. So, I mean, it just, it, it was stunningly bad. And the clock hit zero and it, it hit us that, wow, these guys have scored 12 points in 20 minutes. So CBS, which of course for years and years and still does have the rights to the to the NCAA tournament, they sent a statistician to me and asked me during a commercial break, what was the score of the Rose Bowl? Wisconsin had played in the Rose Bowl um, just three months prior. And the halftime score of the Rose Bowl game was 24-21. Wisconsin was playing UCLA. So I knew what they were doing. Okay, the football teams have just outscored the basketball teams at halftime. And... My my broadcast partner and I, thinking we're in a commercial break, we're just having some gallows humor. Like maybe they're in a, maybe the Badgers aren't going to come out for the second half. Duke was in the same region. One of us says, "Well, I'm sure Duke is really impressed with Wisconsin here today." We think we're just talking to each other. We're not. The engineer back at the studio has the pots all up and. Whoever might be listening to the broadcast is hearing the gallows humor. We don't think anything of it until the next day when a columnist for the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel writes about it. And I'm thinking, I wonder if my career just ended. We didn't, there were no F-bombs, there were, you know, nothing, no foul language, but we were pretty much torching this basketball team for a brutal first half of basketball. As it turned out, the game was was so bad, even the basketball coaches and the athletic director and everybody else said, yeah, we were all thinking the same thing. So we got off the hook. So that was a nightmare in the moment, could have been worse, Um, didn't 
didn't like doing it. It's a good reminder that you should always assume your microphone is hot. But that to me was a was a broadcasting nightmare. But that was that was 1999. I started doing this in '88. I should have known better. Who are your favorite broadcasters to listen to if you have a night off? Uh, you know, I'm not a knowledgeable hockey fan, but I mentioned Doc Emmerich a while ago. I just think he is a master of his craft. Um, I, I greatly enjoy listening to him. Um, despite the opinion, apparently, of a certain percentage of the population. I like Joe Buck. I'm a fan of his. Um, I, I know he has detractors, but I, I think he is very good at what he does. Um, more of the local announcers, uh, Brian Anderson uh, here with, with the Brewers. He does a lot of basketball, both college and NBA. Um, I think he is a enormously gifted announcer. Uh, Len Casper with the Cubs, I think is terrific. There are so many, um, but those are, you know, I was always a big fan of Al Michaels. Um, and that goes back. I'd grown up in Ohio. I remember him as the radio voice of the uh, Cincinnati Reds. Uh, he, he had great calls with the Reds before he asked us all, uh, do you believe in miracles? Uh, he, he had great calls before then and since, um, but yeah, and, uh, you know, guys like that, I, I think, um, in general, I just, I love announcers who let us all know that there is no place he or she would rather be. Um, I don't care about getting the game over so you can catch your plane, um, or any, it's, you've got a great gig. You got a gig that people would love to have. And those announcers who convey that, who understand that they have a great gig, I, I really enjoy listening to those. This is being recorded on August 1st. We're pulling the curtain back for those of those who don't know. It's going to be released a little bit before football season starts in about two weeks. I guess what take us through your football preparation process and what it takes to do a broadcast at the level that you do preparation wise. Well, for me, it's a little bit different now since I've been working with the Brewers because I will I will be with the Brewers from August third through the thirteenth, which means I'll be missing a good chunk of Wisconsin football training camp. I've been to a handful of their practices prior to rejoining the Brewers, but um, I'll be back observing practices uh, 14th or 15th of August, um, just getting familiar with their personnel, uh, their new faces, uh, getting a grasp of what the depth chart will look like. And then for a first game, um, you know, it's normally a week at a time, but for a first game, maybe 10 days prior I'll really start to dig into their opening game opponent, which will be Utah State, and just start pouring over as much information as as I can on Utah State. Um, look back um, at a couple of their games last year, uh, you know, knowing the personnel is going to change from last year until this. Um, I never know how many hours people ask me how many hours of prep do you put in. I I don't count them. It's a lot. Um, you know, there's a lot that we have to do in a radio broadcast, a lot of live commercial reads we have to get in, and a lot of other mechanics. But I, I just basically want to get an understanding enough 
of the opponent that I can tell you at the snap of a finger who has the ball or who made the tackle, who are the two receivers wide to the right, who are the two, you know, who are the receivers wide to the left, who's slot to the left, who's who's the fullback, who's the tailback. Be able to to have that memorized so I'm not looking down at a cheat sheet. We all have spotter boards that we rely on, but I want to be able to have played the game enough in my own mind that when I see who number 47, when, when number 47 has the ball, I want to be able to right away say who it is and not have to hesitate. So it's, um, it's a, some of it is a simple game of memorization. Um, but other, but another part of it is just being around the Wisconsin program enough that if there's time, you could tell a brief story of the, the new freshman receiver who just made a big play or the, or how the quarterback has tried to improve from last year to this year, so on and so forth. I just uh, I don't like to be that drive-by announcer. I like to be somebody who's who's around and whoever is listening can tune in and say, "Boy, this guy, you know, he spent some time around this team. He, he knows some stuff." That's that's a goal that I have. If somebody wanted to reach out to you for any reason, how would they do so? Uh, well, Twitter is probably, um, in today's world, um, I have the creative handle at Matt LaPay. Um, keep it very simple. That's probably a, a good place to uh, to start. Um, I guess I would go with there. There are a couple of other avenues, but I'm not a big Facebook guy yet. Um, um, Twitter seems to be the uh, the most effective way that, that, that people reach out. Uh, otherwise, they could go through athletic communications at the University of Wisconsin, Brian Lucas, Brian Mason, or Patrick Herb, and you can access their contact information on uwbadgers.com. Um, those would be probably the best avenues right now. All right, once again, we are joined by Matt LaPay here on the Say the Damn Score podcast. And Matt, I just really want to thank you so much for taking the time to be a part of this. I, I enjoyed it. My pleasure, and uh, take care. All the best to you. Thank you for tuning in to the Say the Damn Score podcast. Please reach out to the guests that take the time to come on the show. They are a great resource for you, and it's nice to show the guests kind enough to join the show that they are appreciated. Also, please subscribe to the show via iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, the TuneIn app, or the SayTheDamnScore.com email update list. I'm Logan Anderson. Next time you're on the air, make sure to say the damn score a little bit more.